You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to Galatians. I'm going to start uh, with verse 1 of chapter 2, and we'll read through verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who works work through, Peter, through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the, un, to the circumcised, work also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we read these words, Father, we, um, we can be tripped up. Sometimes just in reading them, we get tripped up reading them. Oh, Lord, we look to you this morning and we ask that you'd be pleased to teach us, Lord. Teach us to the heart, oh, Father, as we seek to understand what it is that the Holy Spirit desires, desires to teach us through this message that we have here in Galatians 2. And teach us, O oh Father, open our hearts to receive these things, Father. Make us more in the image of Christ through this, O oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as always, as I already said, last week was, was not easy. Um, last week, as we, as we sought to take Really, verse 1 of our text, chapter 2, verse 1, as we sought to take this part of Paul's biographical sketch and we tried to overlay it over top of what uh, Luke gives us in the, in the book of Acts, we found that a lot of those things are tedious. And, and I did toy around with skipping that part, but I, 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 I don't think that, I think we did the right thing in doing the hard work of looking at that. Obviously, those kinds of messages, they never find their way into being the top three messages of the year. Um, some of you were getting even a little bit drowsy as we were going through it. I understand that, and I'm really kind of exaggerating just a little bit. But there was a lot of tedious information there. But I, I think, and, and, and really, in a couple of days after that, sometimes we find we forget all this. But hold on, you know, keep on just keep on pressing forward, because I think as we go through this again this morning, we're not going to go through it in all the detail we did last week, but as we go through it again, I think you'll discover that um, there's a foundation being put there that, you know, um, that is irreplaceable. Let me give you an example. You know, um, several years ago when we went through the Shorter Catechism for the first time, 
You know, I promised um, some of you, you know, do it. Roll your sleeves up and go through this. And you'll discover there'll be times when it's difficult, but you'll discover that it really does give you a great foundation for understanding the Bible. And there were a few of us that did that. And it was so obvious. I mean, it was so obvious to me that afterwards, you know, Emily's not here. I can pick on her. She went into the next room, but she's a classic example of that. Her theological sophistication increased drastically, right, Alex, through that. And she's gone through it twice since then. It's not always easy. Some, sometimes, it's, sometimes it's actually quite difficult. But let's roll our sleeves up. Let's do this work. Now, um, again, let's keep the argument that Paul's making in mind here. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, you see there, Paul, right from the get-go, he is defending his apostolic authority. He says, Paul, in verse 1, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. What's Paul saying? He's saying he is an apostle. And we would say today an apostle with a, a capital A, he is an apostle, and he's an apostle who's on equal footing with Peter, James, John, Matthew, and the rest. And he is defending this because false teachers have come into Galatia, and they're attacking his authority. Then in verses 6 and 7, he shows that he's, he's just expressing astonishment that the church in Galatia is abandoning the gospel. And he makes some astonishing claims. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. We looked at that really carefully in the first message uh, that, uh, that we had in this series. And what Paul's saying is there's only one gospel, right? That wasn't an easy message in Paul's day anymore than it's an easy message today. But that's what Paul's saying. In fact, in verse 7, he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and even want to distort the gospel. So even a distortion of the gospel is another gospel. And what does Paul say? But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is really strong language. In fact, in verse 6, backing up, Paul basically says this. If we turn to a different gospel... We're turning our backs on the Father who calls us in Christ Jesus. Really strong language. And, uh, of course, whenever you're speaking to somebody about this, someone who doesn't know the Lord, what's their response? Their response is, how can you make such a claim as that? And, of course, Paul has a slightly different uh, reason for giving us Galatians, but the, but the arguments that Paul gives us here in Galatians are arguments that we can use every day to answer that question. When someone says, how can you claim that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way that you can find salvation in God? Paul gives us great fodder to answer that question. And in fact, when you look at verse 11, what does Paul say? He said, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. What's that mean? It didn't come. We didn't make it up. We couldn't have made it up. You know, in an earlier message, I talked about just the genius of the gospel. We could have never have made this up. We could have never come up with this on our own. And Paul's saying, it's not man's gospel. The gospel that was preached by me did not originate from man. Verse 12, he says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? He is saying, I received the gospel directly from the resurrected Christ. Now, anybody can make that claim. If we had somebody walking up and down Main Street saying things like that, we'd think that they lost their minds, would we not? 
I mean, you're going to need to prove that. And that's what Paul's doing in these verses that continue here. He's proving it. He does. He begins with his own personal testimony in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church. And we've looked at that, haven't we? In fact, last week we were looking at Acts chapter 9. And what is Paul doing in Acts chapter 9? He's on his way to Damascus to do what? Persecute the church. In fact, we're told he's breathing murderous threats against all who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul believed Jesus was a farce. He believed that Jesus was, was an imposter. He believed he was a false teacher. He believed that the greatest act of service that he could render to the Lord would be to snuff out any church that he could find. That's what he believed. He's on his way to Damascus carrying the paperwork from the chief priest in order to persecute the church in Damascus where he is blinded by a light, isn't he? And that light is the glory of Christ, isn't it? And there he is converted. And what happens to him? He goes from being the harshest persecutor known at that time to becoming the most um, uh, stalwart um, proclaimer of the gospel at that time, really, in any time. Who planted more churches than the Apostle Paul has? He writes 13 letters of the New Testament, Paul does. How do you explain somebody making that drastic of a change and making that drastic of a change almost instantaneously. So Paul throws his personal testimony out there to start with. He says in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. That's Paul's second argument. Again, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying the gospel that I proclaim is not man's gospel, nor did I receive it from any man, but I received it directly from Jesus. Okay, Paul, prove it. Okay, I've got my testimony. You guys know I was a fierce persecutor of the church. You guys know that. And also, after my conversion, I did not immediately consult with anyone, verse 16. Verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, some of you will remember from last week, you're like, okay, yeah, that's the part where you were talking about, we were going back to Acts and seeing how this lines up with the sacred history that we have in Acts. And yeah, what do we find in Acts? In Acts chapter 9, we're not going to turn there this morning, but just a couple of highlights from last week. What do we find in Acts? Well, after Paul's converted, what does he do? Luke tells us that he ends up in Damascus, and he's proclaiming the gospel in Damascus, isn't he? And what happens in Damascus? Paul ends up, things end up getting heated so that there's a plot on his life. Paul finds out about the plot on his life, and he's lowered down through the wall uh, in a basket, isn't he? He escapes Damascus. Now, where does he go from Damascus? He goes to Jerusalem. And that's what we have here. Paul's telling us the same thing. Verse 18, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Cephas, just another name for Peter. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And we were looking at that also. What does Paul do? Okay, he finds his way from Damascus down to Jerusalem. He preaches in Jerusalem. Things heat up in Jerusalem, right? And there's another plot on his life. So what does he do? He escapes Jerusalem, according to Luke, and he goes up to Tarsus. 
Tarsus is his hometown, but Tarsus is in the province of Cilicia. What is Paul telling us? Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So he's in Tarsus in his hometown. What is he doing there? Preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Now in verse 23, Paul continues, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Here Paul's bringing great, great glory to God. The fierce persecutor is now bringing great glory to God. Now, in verse, two, in verse 1 of chapter 2, this is where we spent a lot of time last week. Paul says, then after 14 years, 14 years, this could be as much as 17 years. I'm inclined to believe it's 14 years after his conversion. But it is possible that it's 14 years after the three years that we already have recorded here, which would be 17 years. I'm inclined to believe this is after his conversion. But we can't be certain about that. But a long period of time goes by. Paul's preaching all this time. And we're told, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, the question we had last week, and it's, it's, it's somewhat important for our, uh, for our studies here in Galatians, but we're not going to take a wrong turn uh, on this one. But you remember last week I said some scholars will say that this, this um, Jerusalem visit here in chapter 2 it's the same as Acts 15. And we spent a lot of time looking at that. And I won't go into all that this morning. We don't have time for that. But I made the case that it's actually Acts 11. And what's going on in Acts 11? Well, Paul's up in Tarsus. Um, he's up in Tarsus. And because of the persecution that has taken place, especially the persecution of Stephen, which interestingly enough, Paul was in the middle of, because of that persecution of Stephen, the church scattered Right? And as the church scatters, um, people go up into Antioch. They begin to preach the gospel in Antioch. What happens? A lot of people become believers. And Antioch becomes a hub of Christianity. So much so that the term Christian actually is coined in Antioch, isn't it? Do you remember that? And word gets back down to the Jerusalem apostles that this is going on in Antioch. So Barnabas goes up to check it out. Barnabas goes up. And he finds it to be exactly the way they said. So part of it says, you know what? I need some help. I think I'm going to go up to Tarsus. I'm going to get the apostle. Paul. I'm going to get Paul and I'm going to bring him down and he'll let him labor with me. And that's what he does. He goes up to Tarsus. He finds Paul. He brings him down. They labor together for about a year. And then a prophet named Agabus comes in and he's and he, and he has shown that there's going to be a famine in the land. And they decide to raise funds to relieve this famine in Jerusalem. And who do they send to Jerusalem to take these funds? It's Paul and Barnabas. So part of Paul and Barnabas return to Jerusalem. And that, my, my opinion, that is what's happening here in, in verse 1. Again, if you think it's Acts 11 or Acts 15, it's either one. There's, there's good arguments for one. There's good arguments for the other. I think the balance leans towards Acts 11, more than 15. But notice what happens here. Paul, uh, after 14 years, he goes to Jerusalem. This we're certain of, with Barnabas, and he takes Titus along with him. And we're told in verse 2 that he went up because of a revelation set before them. Now, it's important that we understand that Paul's not going to Jerusalem because the Jerusalem apostles have asked to see him. 
That's something that's important for us to understand. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Because of a revelation. He's going to Jerusalem because the Lord is sending him to Jerusalem. That's why. Does that make sense? Okay. I went up because of a revelation that's set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. Now, what is the deal with this who seemed influential stuff? Because we run into this again in verse 6, uh, those who seem to be influential. Um, see that in verse 6, from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Um, you see that again? And even in verse 9, those who seem to be pillars, um, there in verse 9, what is Paul doing there? He's walking a tightrope. He's really walking a tightrope. Try to imagine this, okay? The, the false teachers that are coming in apparently appear to be using the status of the Jerusalem apostles in order to leverage their agenda. Okay, everybody thinks of the uh, Jerusalem apostles as way up here, right? That's how you should. In one sense, that's how you should think of them. But what are they doing? We got these teachers from Jerusalem coming in. And um, they're using this. Apparently, they're using this status, if you will, of the Jerusalem apostles to attack Paul's authority and Paul's message. Now, how does Paul defend himself with that? This is very tricky to do. And I think that explains why the wording is the way that it is in, in chapter 2 here. The wording is really tough to, so it can be tough to follow, can it, as you read through this? Um, what is Paul doing? Paul, first of all, Paul is not diminishing the apostles. It sounds at the beginning like he's diminishing them, doesn't it? Those who seem to be influential, those who seem to be, God shows no partiality. What they wear means nothing to me or adds nothing to me. It seems like he's diminishing them, but we must dismiss that idea. Why? Because elsewhere in Paul's writings, he doesn't do that. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's verse 9, what does Paul say there? He says, I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church. Or in Ephesians 2.20, what does he say? He says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. But in other texts, such as this one, he seems to be diminishing them. Now, what's going on here? It seems like you know, and sometimes people will say, you know, the Bible contradicts itself, you know. What changes is the context. And I think that's why I chose to take us to 1 Corinthians 3 uh, this morning. If you keep your place in Galatians and you turn back to 1 Corinthians 3 where we were, what is Paul doing there? Paul says in verse 1, he says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. What's he mean by that? You're acting worldly. You're acting worldly. Okay? I fed you with milk, not solid food. Verse 3, For you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, you're not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? Now what's going on there? They're looking at the status of... Apollos, look at the status of Paul. And one's saying, well, I follow Paul. And the other one's saying, I follow Apollos. Well, these are both people that should be held in high esteem under one condition. But they're using that esteem the wrong way. 
They're using it in a divisive way to satisfy what? Worldliness. And that's what, the, that's what these agitators that are coming into Galatia seem to be doing with the Jerusalem apostles, isn't it? And it's a wrong way to use that status. Now, what does Paul say? If you look at verse 5, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paulus watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now you see what Paul is doing. Here Paul is saying he is nothing but a servant. But in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, he's holding up his apostolic authority, isn't he? What's the difference? The context. There's times where he has to hold up his apostolic authority to show that it didn't come from men, but it came from Christ himself. And there's context where that must be held. But when people are starting to look at this apostolic authority in worldly ways, then it's time for another message. You see the difference? In my notes here, maybe this will be helpful. You know, we have a strategy of Satan here. I put in my notes here, the lure of men with world status. Um, two two um, sentences here I think will help. One, temptation to ascribe worldly status to godly servants. Establishing worldly status to godly servants. Or the temptation to ascribe godly status to worldly servants. Now, is any of that going on in the United States today? <laughs> oh, my goodness, the celebrity pastor culture where people are ascribing fleshly status to godly people, pastors that are very godly, who happen to be being used in remarkable ways, or probably, uh, most definitely, more often than not, where people are ascribing godly status okay, to worldly people. That's probably happening. I think that's happening much more in the United States. What do I mean by that? Where godly status is ascribed to uh, people who aren't even close to preaching the true word of God. As we're, as, we're, as we're rolling our sleeves up and doing the hard work of, of going through this right now, there are large assemblies gathered who aren't going to hear anything like this. And these leaders are being ascribed as truly godly leaders who are nothing more than motivational speakers. And unfortunately, this is usually where the most cars are parked, isn't it? Why? Because this satisfies the fallen lust, if you will, the fallen narcissistic lust of our culture. I had a seminary professor, you've heard me say this, man, doc, uh, you know, Stephen Miller, I loved it, just loved him. Look forward to seeing him one of these days. He's now gone to be with the Lord. And he used to say, you go into those places and preach the gospel, you clear all but the front row. That's what he used to say. And they know that. They're not going to preach the gospel. They clear the place if they preach the gospel. Now, Back to our text here. Where are we at? We're um, back to Galatians. Keep your place in 1 Corinthians. We might come back there again, but back to Galatians. We're here in um, uh, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. You know, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, what is Paul saying here? 
when he says to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Do you remember last week I made a comment about that? Um, and the comment that I made kind of quickly was, Paul didn't go down to Jerusalem to get his paper graded. Do you remember that? What do I mean by that? Paul didn't go down to see if his gospel was accurate or not. He didn't go down to Jerusalem to say, okay, everybody, here's what I've been preaching. You tell me if I'm on spot or not. Why, why can I be so confident to say Paul didn't do that? Because Paul's argument is he got his gospel from Jesus. He doesn't need anybody to grade his paper. He's got his argument from, he's got his gospel from Jesus. So then what is he arguing for here when he says that he, he wanted to be sure he was not running or had not run in vain? What is he, what is he arguing for then? Well, it's divisiveness. You know, the, the, the whole idea of this whole thing is preserving the truth of the gospel. And they're really at a dangerous place right now. When Paul goes down to Jerusalem, I'm sure what he wants to see is that the Jerusalem apostles are still preaching the true gospel. Because what if the, what if the Jerusalem apostles are preaching something else now? What if the Jerusalem apostles really are preaching what these agitators say they're preaching? Then what? Well, now you're going to end up with a, with a Jewish church that's marching to the beat of a different gospel than the Gentile church. And you're going to have this big divide, aren't you? That would be the big problem right there. The second problem is, think about how much this would hinder the, the advancement of the gospel. If every time you preach the gospel, someone says, well, that's not what they preach in Jerusalem. That's not, that's not what's preached by those who were with Jesus during his earthly ministry. You've got things all wrong. You need to get down to Jerusalem and get checked out here. You see the problem? But there's even another problem. And when we were looking at Acts 15 last week, we saw this. In Acts 15, after deliberation takes place, you know, you might remember that James steps forward. And when James steps forward, he quotes the prophets, doesn't he? He quotes Amos. And he quotes Amos to say, as saying that, okay, when God builds his church in the latter times, he's going to include the Gentiles. So Paul realizes that if you end up with a, with a Christian church over here and you end up with a Jewish church over here, then this whole thing is going to be out of kilter with what God has promised to do through the prophets. Fossey says he wanted to be sure he had not run or had been running in vain. Well, notice this next argument that he brings forth here. This is a strong argument. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. Now, what's that all mean? Well, Titus is a Greek. Titus has never been circumcised. Paul takes him with him to Jerusalem, introduces him to the Jerusalem apostles, and nobody forces him to be the, the Jerusalem apostles anyway. Do not force him to be circumcised. No, they accept him as a brother. Now, what's that say? The argument here is that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved, Right? And Paul's saying, wait a second, I had Titus with me when I went to Jerusalem. And even though he was a Greek, even though he was a Greek, look at verse 3, he was not forced to be circumcised. Now in verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, um, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, this is what Paul's laboring for, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. 
This preservation of the truth of the gospel. That's what's at stake here. Because they're attempting to add something to the gospel, namely circumcision. Now, sometimes people will object and they'll say, well, wait a second. Now, Paul circumcises Timothy in Acts 16. Yes, he does. And it's said that he circumcises Timothy in Acts 16 because of the Jews. Yes, it does. But that is for the purpose of a contextualization, not for the purpose of salvation. What does that mean? What that means is Paul wants to remove any offense that he can remove, that he can remove. Any offense that he can remove. If I might stop right there, I've been waiting for a place to stop. I don't know if AJ and Lacey are looking, Tammy might check to make sure they're looking for the nursery or not. They stepped out. I don't know if they're still in the hallway or not. We have some visitors, and I don't know if they know um, where the nursery is. So sorry about that. Now I've got to find my own place here. Um, verse uh, 4 and 5. Yet because of these false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. What's at stake is salvation. What's at stake in Acts 16? Paul just wants to remove any offense that he can possibly remove. He's making, like John the Baptist, prepare the way for the Lord. Sometimes that, that, we call that in theology contextualization. You know, let's, let's, if we can remove offenses, let's remove them because the gospel can be offensive enough, can it? So let's remove any unnecessary offense. That's what Paul's doing with Timothy. But here, here this is a different context. This is a different context. To yield in submission to these teachers would be basically saying, yeah, you're right. We have to be circumcised in order, in order to be saved. Now, once you make that concession, where does it stop? It's quickly going to be keeping the whole law of Moses. And then you're turning your back on the Father who is bringing us salvation by what? By grace through faith. But Paul's argument is strong. He said, I had Timothy or Titus with me. And they didn't force him to be circumcised. They accepted him as a brother in the Lord. That's a strong argument. Now, verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Okay, those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. That's his next argument. I got my gospel from Christ. I didn't immediately consult with anyone. I didn't immediately go down to the Jerusalem apostles. And in fact, when I did 14 years later go down, or 17 years later, however you want to do the math, when I did go down, they didn't add anything to me. They didn't add anything to my apostolic authority. They didn't add anything to my gospel. No, to the contrary. Look what happened on verse 7. On the contrary... When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Well, what's all that? All that can be summed up this way. What they saw in Paul was that he had been blessed with the grace of his apostleship and of the gospel and that he had been entrusted by the Lord himself 
to preach to the Gentiles. Now, again, I think 1 Corinthians 3 helps us see this a little bit better. Let's go back there. Keep your place in Galatians. Let's go back there. If you look at verse 5, 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul is saying, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Now, look at this last line. As the Lord assigned to each. Now, this is, this is what they're seeing in Paul. They're seeing his assignment, aren't they? They're seeing that he has been given the assignment to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. If you look at it, we're in uh, 1 Corinthians 3. If you look down to verse 21, what does he say there? Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Let no one boast in men. And of course, what he is doing here, um, this is what, you know, this, what he is, when people are bragging about Paul and they're bragging about Apollos, what are they doing? They're boasting in men. When people are bragging, when people are bragging, if you will, about the Jerusalem apostles, what are they doing? They're boasting in man. So in this context, what is Paul saying? We're nothing but servants. In other contexts, of course, Paul's going to speak about his apostolic authority if he has to speak about his apostolic authority. But what's going on when Paul goes down to uh, Jerusalem? What's going on down there is they are seeing and recognizing the grace that had been given to Paul by the Lord Jesus himself, namely his apostleship, two, the gospel, and three, the assignment. Look again with me to verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I told you this isn't as hard as last week, but it's still, you're getting all this for the first time. It's still, I'm seeing some heads go, yeah, yeah, you're getting it. I'm seeing other people like, don't just, we got to keep at it. We'll keep going through this as we go along, as we review, and it'll click when it's time. But in, in, let's wrap all this up to a close. What is Paul arguing for? He's arguing that the gospel that he proclaimed was not man's gospel, that he received it from the resurrected Christ, isn't he? And then he's given the proofs. What proof does he offer? His conversion. His conversion. Okay? That's proof he offers. The fact that he didn't consult with anyone, verse 16. I'm back in Galatians again, chapter 1. In verse 16, he doesn't consult with anyone, nor does he, verse 17, go up to the uh, to Jerusalem, to the apostles, and sit under their feet, under their teaching. No. He goes and he preaches the gospel in Damascus and um, in Jerusalem, and then later he goes up to his hometown of Tarsus, right? Paul's got an act of ministry going on here, and he still has never gone down and sat at the feet of the of the apostles. Correct? So that's another argument. Another argument that he brings here is that he brings Titus with him, who's not circumcised. Nor is Titus being forced to be circumcised by the apostles. Right? And then what is another argument? Another argument is no. When they saw Paul, they recognized the grace that had been given to him. Who were they? When the Jerusalem apostles saw Paul, they recognized Paul's apostolic authority has been equal to their own. And they recognized that Paul had been given and entrusted the true gospel and that he had been assigned his task to the Gentile church. Follow all that? I know it's a lot. I think we ought to call it a morning. What do you think? You want to put one? I feel like if we put one more thing on top of this, it might just... Like that game, what is it called? Jenga? Is that what that is? Where you... Let's not put more blocks up there, okay? Heavenly Father, 
We thank you, O Lord, and we praise you, Father. We thank you, Lord, for um, blessing us, Lord, and giving us your word, which sometimes it's easier to follow than other times. And sometimes, Lord, um, us preachers don't make it easy, Lord. If we had Jesus here preaching to us, I'm sure we would get it much better, Lord. But, Father, I pray that, Lord, you would work um, in our hearts and our lives, Father. Help us, O Father, to see these things and embrace these things. For, O Father, as we get a good running understanding of these things, Lord, we, we, I know we'll be better equipped to share this with people who are around us, O Father. And I, I thank you for that, Father. I thank you in advance for that. So, Father, continue to teach us, we pray. And we thank you, O Father, uh, most of all, that you have preserved the gospel for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.